Thanks. We're going to be uh, looking in a moment or two into uh, God's Word together, into the Bible uh, in the New Testament, part of the New Testament of the Bible. And the place we're going is at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll give you a uh, page number. We won't read it just yet, but it'll, if you've got it there, it's page 1194 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, nearby. Making a difference where we are. That's the, the series that we're in at the moment as we uh, are kind of looking together Sunday by Sunday and also in the house groups at, at stuff we can, we can learn really. Because we have this vision, as you may know, as a church, uh, as a whole community, we want to be growing and we want to be growing in three directions. We want to be growing up, as it were, towards God, that we get to know him better um, and that as we worship and we praise, we're, we're kind of looking in that kind of, not literally upward, but we're kind of out of ourselves wanting to know him uh, better. Uh, we also want to be growing uh, kind of in, in a way, to, to be supporting one another, growing together as a community. And we also want to be growing outwards, seeing people touched by God's goodness and God's truth uh, in our community here uh, or wherever we are, wherever God's placed us around the city. Uh, and learning you know, stuff from God's word and processing it through the small groups and the other things we do. All of that is really crucial because God's word is really important. It's like seeds planted, you know. And, and as, as the seed of God's truth kind of gets into our minds and our hearts as it gets planted, it's a bit like seeds. And God will grow good stuff in us and through us as his word kind of takes root and his Holy Spirit kind of makes that real in our lives and starts to kind of water it. And that growth, that fruitfulness, that, that, that kind of good stuff from God is going to be seen right where we are. We're thinking about this, uh, this little theme we're going through over these weeks is about the front line. That place where we are as Christian believers, where most of the people around us are not Christian believers. It's like, uh, it's like out there. You know, if, 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 I don't know, maybe we'll do it at the end. But you know, from where I'm standing, I've got a privilege standing here. Because I can see right out there. I can see, if I go down, I can see to the back of Waitrose Car Park. It's there. It's out there. That's where we live. That's in a way, it's a pity that I'm not standing there and looking this way and you're not all facing me. So you can see through the door like I can. Because that's what's important. That's where it's about. That's where God's called us to live and to be. That's where to be scattered, shining, flavoring, preserving, all those things we've thought about. And all this happens in our culture. And somebody has described culture as the way we do things around here. Um, it, the, the court, the, I'm not sure whether the phrase came from this guy, but uh, the Bishop of Liverpool, David uh, Derek Warlock, rather, uh, coined the phrase once: "The way we culture, the way we do things around here." In fact, he was a Catholic bishop, and uh, uh, the story goes that the Pope sent some people uh, to learn from him because he's a bit of an expert on culture. And they went back and, and uh, for a feedback, went back to the Vatican and were asked, okay, what did you learn about culture? And they said, well, culture is the way they do things in Liverpool because it was the Bishop of Liverpool. So if you're from Liverpool, be encouraged. But the point is that, that the way we, we kind of live, the way we do things, the way we think, the way we are, things that matter in our lives, in our whole society, when almost 
unaware of it because it's like the water that we swim in. If, we, if you're a fish, then the, the, the culture around us is like the water for the fish. You're just kind of in it, but you're not so aware of it because it's all around us all the time. So the way we handle everything, the way we think about everything, it, it's reflected to us in the media that we watch and we listen to and we read. Seen in the stories we tell one another and the things we cheer at and boo at that kind of reflect these, the, these, the way we see the world. And, and our culture is mixed, isn't it? There's some great things about our culture. Children in need. What a great, what a great thing that is. Amazing. I mean, what, what is it that we as British people are so generous? It's kind of in our culture. It's tremendous. I think we are a very generous culture, and that's a great thing. But there are some other things in our culture, in the way we do things, that are very different from the Jesus way. And one of the really big things in our culture is money. Mm, money. In fact, it's so big that. Sometimes we don't, don't even like to talk about it. Well, today is really all about how we, we're going to be showing the difference Jesus makes in how we are as people, as believers, with money. And I also want us to look at uh, what's behind the way our culture works that kind of makes us like this or, or what kind of drives us to have the kind of attitudes we have. And even more importantly, how can we be different? When the pressure is so great all around us, how can we be different? Well, let's see what the Bible says and let's have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to read a few verses from verse 5b. That's the second half of verse 5. Paul's been talking here about people who have been teaching Wrong stuff, really, in the churches around uh, Ephesus where he's writing to. And he's talking about people who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man or woman of God, flee from all of this. And it goes on to say what we should pursue instead. But go down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, this is, a, as I may have mentioned, a letter from one of the leaders of the early church, Paul the Apostle, sometimes known as Saint Paul. 
he wrote uh, to Timothy. That's why it's called 1 Timothy. It was a letter he wrote to Timothy, who was a bit of a, a, a protege or a mentee of Paul's. He worked with him. And uh, Timothy is now uh, leading a church in Ephesus. Uh, we're in the first century here. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, giving him some advice on what he needs to be teaching the people in his church. And that's the book of 1 Timothy uh, is all about that. Now, uh, some in the church there, as we read right at the beginning, had this idea that um, godliness is a way of getting rich. Okay, That was the idea that was going around. Now, What's godliness? Because godliness is a word that occurs a few times here. Well, very simply, it, it means having God in your life. It, it has the idea of respecting or revering God from, from the inside in a, in a personal kind of way. And then because you know God and you love God, then kind of the way you behave kind of comes out of that. We often think of godliness as all to do with the way we behave. Paul is saying, no, it kind of starts inside. It's about, about knowing God. It's about loving him. And then out of that comes uh, certain behaviors. It's really shorthand, I would say, for, for being a Christian, being a believer, being in relationship with God. Knowing God in our lives, working change from within outside. So when we read about godliness, I just want for today to think of it in terms of someone who's a believer, someone who's a Christian, someone who, who's got God in their life. Now why on earth should some people be thinking then that being a Christian makes you rich? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One uh, could be that the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, it was all about God's relationship with the Jewish people. Uh, did talk about how God blessed them through um, a land he gave them, through good health that he promised them, through um, riches of provision and kind of stuff. Uh, And that was um, kind of part of God's blessing on his people in the Old Testament. It's all about land and city and place and blessing and that kind of thing. Very much kind of in the kind of uh, physical world. And Even today, some people actually have got hold of that idea and will be saying, well, actually, yeah, you know, to be a Christian makes you rich. And they will interpret sometimes those promises in that way. But that's not the whole picture. We'll come to that in a minute. So that could be one reason why people thought that. Another reason could have been that there there was just a lot of poor people around then. And and when there are a lot of poor people around the place, around in a society, then not surprisingly, if someone comes along saying, hey, if you become a Christian, you'll be rich. (laughs) That's that's an idea that's quite popular where there's a lot of poor people around, isn't it? Well, why wouldn't it be? Sounds like a great, great idea. And some of us, when we go to developing countries and poorer parts of the world, especially if we go as Christian believers, we we need to kind of be aware that we're not going around over there promising that if people become Christians, they're going to be rich like we are in the West. Sometimes we uh, inadvertently give that impression or that's what uh, is expected. But also then, another reason is, (laughs) then, like now... People generally want to get rich, don't they? 
And that could be why they thought that being a Christian would make you rich, because people want to get rich. But verse 9 is all about that, doesn't it? It's where we, we're kind of starting in verse 9. It says, Paul says, people who want to get rich. And that is an issue. And that's a strong thing. And if, that's such a, if it was so strong in Paul's day... So that there were even people in Paul's day who were teachers, who, who were, you know, I suppose the kind of people who would lead churches, um, write books, um, run conferences, maybe even run TV stations, who believed that uh, if you become a Christian, you can get rich. If that idea was so strong then, and is so strong now, how do we know that it's not true? Well, verse 6 tells us why. It isn't quite true in the way that that may be seen. Because what does it say in verse 6? Godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness, what is it? Loving God, having him in your life, knowing Jesus, being a believer, however we're going to say it. There is great gain in that. There is a huge amount to receive. So in one sense, he's saying godliness, knowing God, equals great gain. And that's kind of what people were saying. But Paul adds something else in there. Did you notice there's another factor? Does it just say being a believer gives you great gain? What else does it say? Godliness and contentment equals great gain. And he goes on, doesn't he, to explain what great gain means. You see, the the other people taught godliness is great gain. But what Paul is saying, godliness plus contentment is great gain. And he talks about being content with having enough. Not having what you want, but what you need. And having God in that, as we shall see. Paul is saying that is a different value, a very different kind of value. It's having God and having enough, verse 8 says. We have food and clothing, we can be content. If we've got God, then we've got everything we need. And it's fascinating, you see this with people. You see it with people who've got loads of money. I know Christians who are extremely wealthy, so do you. And um, it's amazing, you know, it's not a big deal. They're, They're kind of content. They're not flaunting it, they're not... Kind of saying like that to Harry, uh, what's her, uh, you know, that character in the old fast show that, or, that used to say, you know, I'm considerably more wealthy than you. Yeah, well, you remember that? No, you don't. You're too, too young, some of you. It's an old sketch show. Anyway, I shouldn't have shared that. It just came into my head. Um, you know, they, people don't flaunt their, their, um, their wealth, but are, are content. God's given them it. It's cool. Likewise, I've had the privilege of visiting very, very poor believers in, in a village in Nepal. But people have got, got nothing. You know, they're like people in the New Testament who, you know, sometimes they'll go along, uh, and either if they've got stuff in their fields or if they live in a bigger town, they'll go along like day laborers waiting. I went to a church. A lot of the people in this church were like that. If they got, got work on the day, like the, the people in the Bible, they got one penny for the day. They get more than a penny, a few rupees. But they didn't know whether they'd have that tomorrow. Had nothing but content. It wasn't to do with how much you have. Something that's valuable, that is more than money, that has got nothing to do with money. Now, where do we get that value from? 
Two places it comes from in our thinking. Here's the first one in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Understanding the nature of this life. Understanding that life is a kind of journey. We start with nothing, we end with nothing. You know, it, it talks about an entrance and an exit. It's a bit like, you know, I come, come up on the stage, I'm born, here I am on the stage, I've got nothing. And whatever I do in my life, I get stuff, or I make money, or I do this, and I do that, or have, uh, you know, got a house, got a car, go there. And then I walk off the other stage, and uh, where's, the, where's all the stuff? It's not here, is it? It's back there. And Paul is saying we need to kind of get that perspective on life. None of it's going to go with us. So what do we really need when we're on the stage? Really? What is it that matters most? Or think of it the other way. What is it that tends to consume us when we're on the stage? That stops us from perhaps doing other stuff that might actually be more significant when we're off it. Because the Bible does say that what we do while we're on the stage has a great deal of significance when we leave it. But it also seems to be saying here that how much money there is on the stage has got nothing to do with what happens when we leave it. And that kind of perspective on life helps us kind of tune in to a different kind of value when it comes to our money and our stuff. We can can be content. Another way we get to this value is by, by watching what you love or being very careful with what we love. Verses 9 and 10. See, loving God, godliness, enjoying all that he gives us, finding value in things that are not just stuff, but, but spiritual, spiritual values. There are things, as I said just now, that we do here that will last beyond our time here. So if, if while I'm here, I do something that, that touches somebody else's life, and changes the way they live. Or, or the kingdom of God touches their life. And they get to know something of God. That then leads them perhaps to a very different place or direction when they leave here. Well that stays. Or, you know, what if I do something here. That, uh, you know, enables someone to, well let's say, enables a child to come out of care. Have a home. No love. How will that decision, how will what I do with my bit of time here affect that child and his or her children and their children and their children long after I've gone? What what we love Love stuff that lasts. Loving God and loving people. We thought about that last week with the Good Samaritan, didn't we? And and as Lou said last week, how do we really love other people? Well, we can't unless God helps us. 
And so as we love God, as God is in our lives, so, so that other kind of love enables us to help and to love in, in a different kind of way. But the thing is, verse 10 says, it's not loving money. The very famous verse, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, lots of people in the culture know this verse, uh, but they, mistranslate, they misquote it. It's not that money is the root of all evil, did you notice that? But the love of money, it's what we love that counts. Uh, verse 10 says, loving money is a trap. It's a, a root out of which all kinds of evil can grow. Desires can become harmful and, and, and destructive and what matters most gets destroyed because we know, don't we, that what you love, what we love, tends to shape us because we're beings that are made to worship, actually. We're made to love, we're made to honor, we're made to revere and we're, we're made actually to worship God and not to worship the things he's given us. So where does that different value come from? It comes as well from being careful what we love. Now, how could we live like that? There's something, it's, uh, you know, how, you know what, how does that kind of work out? How can we avoid this trap? So there's a trap there, Paul says, well, how do we avoid it? How can we kind of model godly character? How can we be godly, uh, show the fruit of, of knowing God in our lives where we are on our front lines? How do we speak up for truth and justice? How do we show a different way where we are? Well, I don't know. You'll have to think that through for yourself. But here's a few little pointers. First of all, we don't have, sorry, we don't have to make as much money as we can, do we? We don't have to have as much as we can. Who says we should? Sometimes, I remember when I was quite small. Yeah, well, not that small. I was a teenager, actually. Um, someone said, here's a good thing to do. When you're watching, watching, um, TV adverts, this was years ago, uh, he said, just ask the question, why? Shout the, shout the word why at the TV screen, you know, so, 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 you know, which is a very good thing to do, you know, because often the values and stuff that come out are just kind of, ex, kind of put there, and you say, well, why? You know, so you need this, 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 this car, you know, the implication, because these days, in those days, when people had adverts, they very blunt, they pretty much said, if you get this thing, it will make you more attractive to women. They, you know, they didn't use, do this in subtle ways. They just told you outright in the 70s. Um, and then the idea is, well, why? <laughs> You've got to have as much money as possible. Why? Why is that? And, you know, that can apply at all kinds of levels. Let's talk about growth. Oh, my goodness, growth is the word, isn't it? Our economy just has to be growing. That means means we have to be making more money as a country. We have to be spending more money. In fact, the government kind of tell us, uh, you know, you've got to spend more and buy more. Otherwise, the country is going to go down the tubes. The only way the economy would be all right is if you buy lots more stuff. And what's more, you can borrow loads of money that we don't have, by the way, so you can buy more stuff. But why? Why do we have to have that kind of growth? Do we? I don't know. I mean, I don't get too political about it. Uh, This is a bit naive, but anyway. Could we love something more than money? What else matters other than profit? This way of seeing things which is always about profit is not just seen in business. We, We use that kind of index to measure everything. 
you know, why is it that it's all about how many patients can a doctor see? Or how much time you know, can a, a care worker get away with looking after an old person? Or how many rests? Everything, how much, how much, how much? All of that, some people are saying, is based on, on a culture that says the bottom line is everything. Well, why? Is that, is that, you know, could we model something different in our workplace? I'm not saying, you know, get out and, you know, I don't know how you do it. You have to pray about that, I think. But model something different. I mean, you can even say numbers of conversions for pastors. You know, we, you know we, we, we're dangerous thinking of that. You know, my church is only successful if it keeps growing in numbers, some pastors may feel. But that's, again, that's the kind of thing that comes out of the business, the we've got to have more of everything kind of idea. Well, why do we? What could we do to promote good things for people, good things that are not the bottom line? Something we could think about at the forum. What about the money we're owed as a church by our builder? What about that? How does that affect things? How might we apply this about being content with what we've got, even into that area? I, I read a story recently of a GP. A junior, he got a job as a junior partner in a surgery. And uh, he, the, the budgets were set every year. And when it came to budget setting time, they were setting the salaries for the support staff in the practice. And he, he noticed that the support staff hadn't been given a pay rise for 10 years. And uh, he, he kind of thought this was a bit unjust. Uh, because the, uh, the, the partners, they were all having a pay rise every year. And, and the senior partner said, <coughs> well... They're happy to work for us for that amount of money. Why should we pay them any more? And, and, and this, this, this guy thought he was a Christian. He thought, this isn't fair. This isn't just. Why? Yeah, why? Yeah, why should we at the top of the tree, uh, the hierarchy, as Rachel was saying, always get more, you know, more pay than people? Not more pay, but bigger increases. That's what I'm trying to say. I can see you have different pay if you do different jobs. But, but this kind of value thing. Sorry, I must rush on, otherwise we'll be... Think it through, talk it over. How can we show that enough is okay? Actually, more than okay. It's all we need. And if what we've got is what we need on the stage, as it were, of our life, maybe we'll have a bit more time for things that are more important, that are better value. Can we help people kind of get this as a church? Can we help each other as a church get that? Can we kind of do things that help people share good things that point to stuff that matters more than money? I don't know. We can think about that. Well, let's look at verses 17 to 19 much more quickly. This is the second thing. Paul has first of all talked about people who uh, want to be rich. Then in verse 17, he talks about those who are rich. You see that? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Well, that's encouraging because it really is okay to be rich then, isn't it? Paul is saying, in that he said, so there are people who are rich, that's fine. But this is what they, these people need to know. Now that's a relief, isn't it? Because we're all pretty rich. You may not think you are, but we live in the sixth wealthiest economy in the world. 
according to some measures. So if we think globally, um, we are. Now I know if you're on benefits, that's different and you don't feel like you're very rich and you aren't compared to the rest of people in the country who aren't on benefits. But as a whole country together, we are doing reasonably well. So we can all think about this. How can we handle wealth? Well, some quick kind of bullet points here. Paul says in verse 17, once again, it's about value. It's not about wealth. You see what he says there in verse 17? He says, um, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. It's uncertain. You can, it can be here today, as some of us found out in 2007, 2008, and it can be gone tomorrow. And the fact that you've got money or you've got power or you've got a position or you've got wealth doesn't mean that you're better than anyone else. So don't be arrogant about it, Paul is saying, to those who are well off. And that's something we can learn collectively uh, as, a, as, a, as a country, I think, not to be arrogant. We're no different because of what we have. Now, culture... The way we do things around here says the opposite of that, doesn't it? All the time it's saying, if you've got more money, if you've got more stuff, then you're worth more. You're not worth more, you've just got more money or you've got more stuff. Your opinion doesn't count for anything more than someone who hasn't got a bean. That's what this verse is saying. And again, that's not what our culture says, is it? So how do we live in a way that shows something different. Second thing Paul goes on to say here is that God gives us all things. Verse 17. See that? God gives us all things. Richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So that's good, isn't it? Enjoy what God has given you. He's given you it. Enjoy it. Thank him. But trust him. We trust in God, not in our wealth. Otherwise, we start worshipping not the one who who gave us these things, but the things he's given us, and that's no good. It's not helpful. It leads to a dark path. So we we need to be careful of thinking, if only we had more money, we'd be okay. It's so easy to think that, isn't it? Even as we think about the building project, you know, we sometimes think, if only we had, you know, another, another 40,000 pounds, we'd be fine, you know. Or if only, you know, sometimes, sometimes as a minister, you look at other churches. And I remember I once talked about, talk, talking to the vicar of Highfield once. And he was talking about how many, he said, you know, he said, I sat down once, I realized there were 35 consultants in, 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 my, in our congregation. He wasn't boasting about it, it was just a casual remark. I remember thinking, God, I wish we had 35 consultants in our congregation. Think how much money they could give and all the things that we we could do it's wrong isn't it but we all think if only i had a bit money more money no we have god who provides everything we need and you know if we need an extra forty thousand pound for the building which i think we do i think we do uh, anyway he'll provide that we can trust him for that that's the point god gives us all things so we can trust him we have security in him not in our money. Then we can be generous. Paul says, be generous. He says, God richly provides everything so we can be rich in good deeds. See what he's doing there? God's rich in giving it to us, richly giving it. We can be richly giving it to other people and richly doing good things. So it means that we can be like God. We show people what God's like by the way we handle what he's given us. That's what he's saying there. 
using it for good, sharing it, not keeping it. It's not mine. He's loaned it to me. And then Paul says, look, uh, I've said that rich in, rich in good deeds, yeah, generous and rich in good deeds. I mean, there's lots of things that of good things we can do if we have resources. So let's do them. If we have what we need, we can do all kinds of things with what we don't need. Bless some other people. You know, you know, pay it forward. See that pay it forward idea? You know, that if you do one, two good deeds you know, to other people, they will just pass it on. It kind of works, I think. Rich in good deeds. Then Paul goes on to say, verse 19, there's a coming age. See that? He talks about the age to come. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life that is truly life. Use what we have now to invest into the coming age. So, as I said before, something of the kingdom in someone's life People getting straightened out can change for generations. What we do does affect the coming age. We know the life that's coming now. Paul says, as we do things, if you like, in the light of you know, what's not here, but when we leave, then actually, strangely and rather wonderfully, we kind of taste the age to come. How does that work? What's that about? When as we bless other people, as we live for God, we get a taste of that life that really is life. How? Well, God is with us now. That's what a believer is, someone who's come alive to God. Jesus said in John, uh, John's gospel, I think it was chapter 14, he says, if, if, if a person believes in me, if they keep my word, then he says, I will come and I will make my home in them. My father will come and make our home in that person. God comes into our lives as we follow and trust in Jesus. And, and that life of God in, in our lives is the same life that will continue when we're off the stage, so to speak. And so as we, as we know God's help in our lives now, so we're getting a flavor, a taste of that life that is to come. When we're at home with him forever. So the question we need to think about is how can we show these qualities in the way we live? How can we be generous? How we can show good true value? How can we live like we're trusting in God? How can we be aware of the coming age? How can we help each other do that? But we're in a world then where everyone wants to be rich. Where some of us are rich and where there's enormous pressure to follow the culture around. How can we be different? Well, James, another apostle, actually probably the brother of Jesus Christ actually, wrote a letter to some churches and uh, we have it in the New Testament. It's on page 1215. Just quickly turn to James chapter 3, page 1215. And it's verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, so-called wisdom, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest in righteousness. It's a few minutes. I'm going to finish in three minutes' time. So don't worry, this is another full sermon. So James wrote this letter to some churches, probably based on his preaching. And as as you know, James' big bugbear, uh, and it comes out in his letter, was that that Christian believers really ought to be matching um, what they do with what they believe. You know, it was James who thunders out in this letter, faith without deeds is dead. And here he's in the same stream of thought. He's saying to look, look, you think you're wise, you say you're understanding. Well, you've got to show that in the way that you live. And he drills right down to the heart of what often really drives us. He's kind of going to this thing about what really drives you, he's saying to, to, to the people he's writing to. And he suggests that what often drives us is what he calls bitter envy and selfish ambition. That's what kind of drives the desire to have loads of money or to have lots of stuff or to, to make it or to try and you know, gain value in status and wealth and stuff and all that kind of thing. James is saying what the engine of that is this thing he calls bitter envy and selfish ambition. Interesting. Think about it. That is behind a lot of what makes us want to be rich, isn't it? It's where the culture takes us big time. You know, market economics, in some ways, some people would say, really do big up the fact that everybody wants to be a bit greedy. That's, again, a caricature, but there's some truth in it, I think. And where on earth, where would the social media be without bitter envy? Where would it be? If you took everything off self, off face self, but Facebook, Twitter, uh, and other stuff, if you said nothing, you know, prompted by being envious or a bit bitter, none of that's allowed on the internet anymore. Be a smaller internet. If you took off pornography, there'd almost be nothing left. I think. Bitter, and, and James is saying these things drive us. But he goes on to warn us, if you're driven by these things, you're in big trouble. You think it's wise, says James, but it's dark. And he points to another way. Verse 17, he talks about another kind of engine for, for driving our lives. And he calls it wisdom from heaven. Wisdom from heaven. Very, very briefly, from God. Now, Jesus said, didn't he, that when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in him, we're born from above, born again, born from above. God's life comes into our life. Godliness, as I said, is about this life from God. Because of Jesus, brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we're able to live with God in our lives. And and the power and the presence of God brings this wisdom, this other way, of living, another way of being kind of driven or, or, 
or led. I don't like that kind of driven sense, but you know what I mean. And, and, and look at verse 17 to 18. Look at the fruit that gets produced by that. It's like planting a harvest, says James. It's really important, isn't it, that we get that. Because sometimes we just fail to see that if we're a Christian believer, the living God will live with us and work in our lives. It's just so easy to forget that, isn't it? Well, perhaps it's just me. I find that. Just to forget that or not to see that. Godliness and contentment. A life in God's hands. That's where it starts. Loving God, not money. Living that way on your front line and mine. And if, and if your front line is on this planet, <laughs> then your front line, wherever that is, is going to include stuff about money. <laughs> How much? Who gets it? What do you do if you don't have it? What, it's going to be there, isn't it? Wherever we are. Godliness and contentment. What we share, what we keep, is all going to be there. So why not do something different? Do you remember some of us uh, on the away day, we were given these little cards. They're the credit card size. You may have still got one. I've got one in my wallet. And it means that when I open my wallet, there's this little card there kind of pointing at me, saying the prayer on it, Father, help me to do the things that will lead to being fruitful. What little thing could you do just to remind you that... Jesus wants to kind of touch others by the way you model living with or without money. We need to see, don't we, what he wants to do in our lives. We want to be praying. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Help me to see that you want to be in my life, that you want to be living with me, through me, making a difference where I am we haven't got time for discussion but it's alright we're going to respond in some worship uh, for the next few minutes the children are not returning are they um, parents you need to collect them uh, when the service ends thank you